Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Jeremy Harbour. Jeremy is a mergers and acquisitions expert, a mentor, an author, and uh, still doing deals as we speak today. And actually, uh, in full disclosure, he's one of my mentors. He's one of the one of the uh, only full courses I've taken and, and, and are really active inside of his community. He built a beautiful community inside of the mergers and acquisitions space. I want to welcome you and, and thank you for being on the show, Jeremy. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Let's just start off with the same place we start everybody else at, and that is, what is your origin story? How did you get into buying and selling businesses? Um, you know, what got you started? Yeah, look, I'm an entrepreneur through uh, through and through. Um, I I was the annoying kid at school that was always trying to sell people stuff. I was the the son of a farmer. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in in the south of England, and um, uh, and I could work on my dad's farm for a pound an hour. Let's say. A buck an hour for your audience and uh so of course my imagination was constantly how the hell do i make more than a a buck an hour um and so i constantly be coming up with these schemes and ideas for, for generating more money and i mean i had a, a weekend market store where i was selling watches and jewelry and a whole whole bunch of stuff anyway um i left school when i was 15 i didn't finish high school and i, I pursued that business it was actually generating quite a bit of cash at the time for a 15 year old and um uh, but that went spectacularly bust when I was 19 years old. I really overstretched myself. I took on a new premises, lots of staff, and I suddenly had this baptism of fire that not everything I, I touched turned to gold. In fact, in the little chat we were having just before uh, just before this this conversation, I was saying to you, you know, the day I started in business was the day I felt I knew the most about business. You have this kind of uh, arrogance about how easy everything is going to be until the fucking rubber hits the road, and then you realize where all <laughs> all the obstacles are and how difficult it really is but anyway when bus when i was 19 and at that time it was the early 19 or mid 1990s uh and i got into telecommunications so mobile phones were miniaturizing telecoms you know every man and his dog had a telecommunications company and it was really kind of uh booming and i guess i rode the crest of that wave uh and started my own company that grew quite quickly as i think pretty much anybody that dabbled in that space at that time uh did um, and then what was really interesting is, I mean, I, I was always a student of business. I read every book, went to every seminar, you know, listened to cassettes but, because that was what you did back then. There was no internet. So, um, you know, I was really immersing myself in my own business education and talking to anybody that was vaguely successful about business. And, and what was uh, completely clear to me then was that there were only three things you could really do to influence the performance of your business. And that was sales, marketing and your team. And everything was kind of built around those three levers that you could play around with to improve uh, your business. Now, when the telecoms uh, industry started to massively consolidate in the later 1990s and early 2000s, you had that dot-com boom sort of uh, era. Everybody was buying everybody else. Um, I suddenly realized there was a there was a way to grow that um, had never been previously apparent to me. I mean, it was literally I just never, ever thought about the idea of buying a business. And I guess... I dismissed it because I didn't have tons of money. I had a really shitty credit rating because I'd gone bust a few years before. And, um, uh, and yeah, basically, I couldn't borrow money from banks. You know, didn't have the capital to do it. In fact, I, I had choice 
you know, the, my choice would be whether to pay the staff or the credit card bill at the end of the month, not whether to go and buy this other business. But what I realized, because I was being approached really regularly by other telecoms companies that were trying to buy me, what I realized was they didn't have any money either. You know, so these people sitting on the other side of the table, um, they talked a good game and they put a good presentation together. And the, and the, the idea that they were pitching me, because it was a pitch after all, was, was pretty compelling. But they were in the same position I was. They were just trying to grow their company and add more customers, add more value. So I figured, shit, I need to be on the other side of this desk. And so I went out and started pitching anyone I could find that had a telecoms business about trying to buy them. Now, I had no idea what I was talking about. I was completely out of my debt. I was in my early 20s. And I always describe myself as a, as a late shaver. I never would have been able to produce that wonderful beard you have on, on your face. I was always a, 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 you know, a little baby face kid. And, um, that really hampered me, really held me back. This kind of, uh, always looking younger than I was thing. And, um, and so anyway, I went around, uh, pitching people. Eventually I found somebody that basically was in a distressed scenario. They felt they had lots of natural buyers for the business, but obviously no one that would be able to complete a deal in the time frame they were looking to do it in, which was a sort of matter of a matter of weeks. And I was able to put a deal together, literally kind of invent a deal structure um, and paste something together that got that deal done and over the line without me committing any capital up front. Now, um, it wasn't an especially fantastic deal. It was a couple of hundred grand a year of revenue. But what was uh, interesting about it is, A, it broke my deal virginity. It gave me enormous confidence. I actually did my second deal two weeks later. So it really was the catalyst for uh, uh, for doing lots of deals. And um, uh, and what was cool, what was really cool about it is I grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. And I hadn't done any sales, any marketing, or done anything with my team um, or risked any capital in the transaction and for me it was just an epiphany it was kind of like you know finding look at peeking behind the curtain and seeing a whole new universe that existed uh behind there and and that was really from then on uh the 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 foundation of a a new kind of uh life and, and addiction frankly you know, it's interesting. One of the things that attracted to me to your course, and and full disclosure, I've taken I've taken your course to for my audience to know, was that creative deal structure. I I came from running a uh, a real estate investment group, a real estate investment firm that bought foreclosures. I seen the nasty things that banks will do to to people. Even a lot of the people, not a lot, I say a, a high percentage, 30, 35 plus percent of the people in foreclosure were in foreclosure at no fault of their own. Um, mm insurance premiums change. They just, you know, the only fault was they probably bought a house at the edge of what they could afford. But this creative structure that you had with no banks involved, uh, I'm bank adverse. Uh, I really am. Like I've seen what they'll do. I've seen what they can do and and some of the shady stuff um, that, you know, happens, you know, in the big banking industry for just the real estate side. So when you're like, you know, when you were advertising, you know, dollar down, no money down, type of deals in creative structure. I've been doing that in real estate for a long time. So, uh, you know, your first thought is, is it really possible? Mm. Yeah, no, it's a very common uh, uh, disconnect that people have. And uh, look, for me, it was it was necessity. And what is it they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I didn't have a choice. And so I had to come up with a structure that worked. Now, obviously, that meant I probably walked away from a dozen deals that could have worked if I'd had uh, the cash. But um you know, if you can if you can create a deal that has asymmetric risk, so you your downside is is 100% protected, you you could break even or you could make money. 
well, you should take that bet every time. Uh, and, uh, and, and I guess that's what I tried to create with the, with the deal structures that I was doing. And, um, you know, they got more and more creative as I tried new things and, and, and grew a bit, uh, a bit older. Um, but absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, look, there's, there's leverage buyouts, which is what most people understand a no money down deal to be, which is simply like taking a mortgage on a house. You borrow money to leverage an asset. Now, um, I don't like leveraging property particularly. Um, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm 47 years old. So I've been through about three housing crises in my, in my life. Um, and, you know, we're now in an era where the Fed is promising to raise interest rates. Um, and historically, when that's happened, it often leads to a housing uh, collapse. And the problem with a housing collapse is it tends to be a spiral because as soon as the prices go down, it pushes a whole new band of people into negative equity. Those houses get repossessed. That drives the market a bit lower. And those will trigger a, a whole new rough. And it, and it gets very bloody very quickly. And then a good amount of time passes and everybody forgets about it. And all the investors in, are new in real estate. Um, and then history repeats itself. What is it they say? The only thing we learn from history is we learn nothing from history. Um, <laughs> so you get, you get back into the same, you know, shitty death spiral that you had 15, 20 years ago. Well, I guess the last time was probably 2009, but that was a little bit, uh, you know, I think people felt it in Florida and a couple of other places, but, but a lot of people escaped, uh, escaped that one. Um, but that, that's on the real estate side. Now, real estate, you know, prices move in real estate pretty slowly. It's not a very liquid asset and, uh, and, and prices move pretty slowly. Small business is incredibly volatile. You know, um, you lose two key customers, two key staff members. The business can change dramatically overnight. Likewise, you could win a customer or, or you know, uh, take a significant, uh, you know, step forwards or, uh, you know, joint venture or something like that that could massively increase the value of the business. But nonetheless, you know, if you're going to leverage, if you're going to borrow money, do you really want to be borrowing money against a, a highly volatile asset? You know, um, I, I think I've said this to people before, you know, with the, uh, the cryptocurrencies, the mean coins and the nfts that might be an nft behind you i can't really see but uh the, yeah, this kind of uh um you know this kind of uh thing would you would you mortgage your house and stick it into a meme coin a doge coin or something like that i mean i'm, I'm sure there's a percentage of the audience that would say yes but it's fucking daft <laughs> so i'm not quite sure and that's um, not an nft i haven't touched nfts just for that purpose i was like i don't understand uh, it enough to design it or be part of it and uh, yeah, yeah. studied it a little bit just because I got curious for one of the acquisitions I was looking at. Um, it had a potential NFT play on it. Um, mm -hmm. It was a lot of original content inside of there. But other than that, if it doesn't benefit one of the businesses I'm in, I'm I'm gonna I'm mm -hmm. gonna keep moving along. It's <laughs> it's a fascinating area. Look, I, lo I I love NFTs, but I love NFTs for the technology around chain of custody. I think um, that chain of custody thing enables you to sell uh, smaller ticket uh, assets and items. It enables you to, to um, you know, fractionalize um, assets more easily, uh, whether that be art or physical assets like yachts and planes and things like that. But uh, obviously, at the moment, we're still caught up in the board eight phase of the technology development. I mean, if you look at the early days of the Internet, that was just, you know, porn and gambling. So uh, I guess they need to get the whatever the latest generation's equivalent of porn and gambling out of their system and then the real uh, innovation will come. Yeah, I honestly think that there's going to be a big uh, shift. Uh, I think the NFT, the technology about it, the chain of custody is going to disrupt, like totally disrupt a lot of industries. I had a uh, company mm -hmm. come to me and ask me if I wanted to buy mm -hmm. a closing company because I'm, you know, you know very, very uh, 
informed in the real estate space. And I was like, you know, not quite yet. And the reason is, I honestly think the uh, the blockchain and NFT is going to totally do away with a lot of the uh, traditional closing uh, of anything that holds a title. So yeah, let's jump yeah, right into the the topic of like you know buying versus building, right? We uh, hmm. a lot of us entrepreneurs, we think that if we got to create a new idea, we just we we start. Nobody's got it done right. I'm going to do it myself, you know, and uh, you know. What's the difference between that mentality and uh, I, I love one of the uh, phrases you use about the marathon, right? Re- running the race. But uh, why, why buy one as opposed to, you know, creating an idea and starting from scratch? Yeah. So, look, I think there's different reasons you, you can buy companies, you know. So the one I just talked about was kind of a bolt on. It was a way of expanding a business I already had without taking on additional staff members, investing in marketing, trying something new and risky. I could just add more customers to my customer base. And that's one kind of use for acquisitions and a very, a very viable one. Um, what you're talking about is kind of the, uh, um, you know, starting uh, or uh, buying a business instead of starting one. And I think this is also quite valuable because when you do start a business, you tend to find that first three years is really pushing the rock up the hill. Um, you know, you're developing the logo, the concept, the brand values, the website, the, you know, finding employee number one, going out there and selling product yourself to try and get some, um, inertia. And, uh, and, and that's pretty thankless. So, because when you value a business, you value it, you know, for the, the shareholder value perspective, um, you tend to value it on, on its yield, what it can earn you. You know, when you hear about price earnings ratio, it's a multiple of how much the business generates an in income. Well, in that first three years, you don't generate a lot of income. You build a lot of foundations. Um, and so, you know, you only have a finite number of those three-year stretches you can invest in things. And a lot of times, 95% apparently of times, those three years end in tears. You know, they don't actually get you uh, anywhere. And so I would much rather buy a business without investing my own capital and without borrowing money from banks that got me through the three-year phase. Um, I have staff, I have customers, I have revenue, I have profits, I have a website, I have a brand. Now, if you want to change that brand or change that website or tweak the product or add another product to the mix, you can do all of that stuff self-financed from within the business. And you can do it a lot more quickly than developing it all uh, from scratch. So even if you have an idea for a revolutionary poodle clipping parlor, um, and you can't find a poodle, a poodle clipping parlor to buy. Maybe you could buy another business that perhaps has a similar customer demographic or, a, you know, something related that you could then, uh, you know, do, do that sort of, uh, idea within rather than, um, you know, doing that absolute from scratch thing. And, and I think the thing that really solidified this idea in my mind was when I looked at what people spent on restaurants. Um, you know, people spending half a million to two million on a, on a restaurant refurbishment. Um, and I could literally pick them up. I was offered 10 a week, um, uh, that had closed down where I would pick up all the fixtures, all the fittings and the, you know, kitchen and everything. Um, pretty much if I took over the lease and paid the rent to the landlord. Um, and so, you know, all, and, and this, you know, this happened with alarming regularity how much money would be invested in that startup uh, uh, restaurant. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for doing that. Having said that, I don't take away the education you get from a startup. You know what I said about that kind of um, dose of humility that you get from, uh, from 
you know, having to do something yourself and realize how hard it is. Because if you haven't done a startup, I think you could be sitting there on the sidelines believing it's really easy. And I think you do need that, that dose of humility. I think it's a rite of passage to go through the process of doing a startup. I just don't get the serial startup guys, you know, the ones that have done 30, 40 startups in their life. Life's too fucking short. Uh, again, we were talking about the spending time with our kids thing. You know, we both have young families. We like to spend time with our kids. Um, and I'm so glad that I took a deal-making path in my life because my kids are seven and five and I've, I've worked from home, lived at home, been with my kids for that, you know, that entire time. And I meet people who have adult children that barely knew them as children because they were working so hard in their, uh, in their business. So, um, yeah, I'm hugely grateful for the, uh, the time that you get being a deal maker. Somebody asked me, why don't you, know, you started so many businesses. Why don't you just grab an idea and run with it? And I was like, cause I'm 50 and you know, three to five years to get the rock pushed up the hill as you refer, refer to it this doesn't appeal to me anymore because mm. those three to five years if you're really going after it if you're really meaning mean to, to do that you're going to spend a lot of those weeks at 50 60 70 sometimes even 80 hours of the week my kids are yeah, working more than that business is <laughs> yeah you, you sacrifice everything in a startup um your social life your um yeah your uh, sometimes friendships, relationships, you know, all sorts of things, which um, it's a young man's game. I agree. It's, um, and also, you know, you, that it, when you're young, you can take those kind of gambles as well. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're happy to stick everything on red or black or whatever it is and spin the wheel. Uh, when you, uh, you know, when you, when you've gone through the motions, you've made some money, you've had a career, it's time to stop sticking everything on red and spinning the wheel. It's time to like, uh, have a, have a slightly more planned existence, not a um, robbing Peter, not quite paying full, um, you know, uh, crazy existence. It's interesting as one of my friends love, yeah, but then you have the, if you build it yourself, you have that story that I built this. I was like, yeah, I kind of given up the ego behind that. I'd rather say I mm. own this than I built this. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're out there, we're out, you know, I've got a lot of listeners here that are out there that are looking for deals and stuff. Um, talk a, a little bit about what does it look like? You know, I mean, is this something you can do on your own? Do, do you build, typically like have a, a set of resources, build a team around like a deal acquisitions team? What is your recommendation in that space? Yeah. So look, it's quite common. Um, it's quite common for people to build a, build a deal team, you know, a lawyer, accountant, that kind of stuff uh, all around them. Um, I actually tend to recommend against it. So um, what I tend to find is that um, when you surround yourself with advisors, um, they feel like you have to be adding something to the to the conversation. And so consequently, you end up with this kind of decisions made by a committee um, sort of thing. And also you start to second guess your own judgments and start to rely on other people's uh, opinions. And at some point, I think you've got to, you know, just um, uh, make some decisions and stick by them and, uh, and, and do things. Um, and, and also, I think for actually getting a deal done, um, if you can do it mano a mano with the business owner. So if you can sit down, you know, when, when you're buying a small to medium sized business, it's often owner managed. So it's a very different transaction to a corporate transaction. You know, when, you know, this ma massive multinational brewing company buys another multinational brewing company, well, you know, the shareholders are not the owner, are not the directors and the directors um, employ all these advisors and the advisors sit in a room and hammer out the deal together and then the directors present it to the shareholders and if they vote in favor, then the deal goes ahead. That, that's a completely different uh, dynamic. You know, when it's when it's an owner-managed business, it's about creating a relationship and rapport with that business owner 
um, solving a problem for them, figuring out where they are now and where they want to be. And is there a way that you can help them get there, um, which ends up with you getting what you want to. Um, and uh, and that's that's pretty much in a nutshell what doing deals with the business owners are, is about. And, and that could well be that they're transitioning into their retirement. It could well be they're transitioning into another uh, business. It could well be they're getting rid of a hot potato, something that, that's keeping them awake at night that they uh, don't really want in their hands anymore. Um, there's a whole whole bunch of reasons, and if you can help them get from where they are um, to that new place, uh, then uh, often there's a deal to be done. So we, we're reaching out to business owners who have a need. We're solving the need, and that's how we facilitate, you know, getting a low down, no down type of deal. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people don't understand that, you know, it's not zero down. That the owner's not like handing to the business for a dollar per se. It's, it's it's no money right this second or it's it's you know a lot of times it's deferred or it's out of out of the you know um one of the ones i just seen um they acquired the business and promised the owner a certain down payment within the first 90 days and then they liquidated a bunch of over excess uh inventory and most of the money came out of the cash that was in the business and that uh that inventory they were able to sell off to give the owner what he wanted down Right, so mm-hmm. it's still a dollar out of out of the buyers, out of that guy's pocket, the acquisition entrepreneur's pocket. But uh, you know, the owner still got money. Uh, how often Absolutely. is that yeah, the no, case when you do deals? Yeah, no, no money down doesn't mean no money. Yeah, so I think that's an important differentiation, and um, uh, and yeah, it's just how it's structured, and it, and it's structured in a way that creates that asymmetric uh, that asymmetric risk. And I think the other thing to be you know cognizant of is that. Um, this is a buyer's market. There are a lot of businesses out there that need to transition and change hands, and there aren't a lot of natural buyers for them. These these businesses are way too small for a um, institutional or, or competitor to buy them. Um, they simply can't afford to do the due diligence to carry out a transaction. And the ones that are on the market really aren't geared up to sell. Their accounts aren't kept in a way that uh, is is suitable for a potential buyer. They're often, you know, designed to mitigate tax rather than present profits. They've got lots of personal expenses running through them, that sort of thing. Um, they don't have their data room up together. You know, they wouldn't pass the kind of traditional scrutiny that a buyer is going to want to go through in order to think about acquiring that uh, company. And so, um, so really, you know, they don't have a ton of other options. And so, when you can present them with a really good solution to transition out of the business that ends up with them getting a fair price for it as well. Um, it, it really is a win-win for everybody. You know, I was talking to a, a couple of people here on the show that do private equity and, uh, you know, they were saying that the private equity starts looking at companies at the profit, we refer to refer to as EBITDA or solid discretionary earnings. They're actually kind of focusing on that, <clears throat> that, that EBITDA or a profit out of 1.5 million and above. Well, you at a really good profit margin, if you've got an excellent profit margin of a company, say 20%, that's a $7.5 million company. So a lot of people, when you say small to medium, for a lot of you know uh, acquisition entrepreneurs, a company generating 1.4, 1.3, you're under the radar of those uh, institutional mm-hmm. site buyers is still a life-changing deal that can happen. You know, uh, you know, that market, what I'm trying to get to, I guess, is that market of... Uh, business owners where the private equity and you know the corporate buyers are not really diving into is a lot bigger than most people would expect it's mo- it's most of the economy 
yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's a it's a really really large. I mean, it's a pyramid, isn't it? With kind of Apple and Amazon at the top, and the further down you go in terms of scale, the wider it becomes. And so, you know, there, there's a there's a bottoming out level. I wouldn't buy a business doing less than half a million a year because it's pretty much a job for someone. It's not really a, a business. Um, but there's a yeah, there's a sweet spot in the kind of one to five million sort of space where the company is, uh, you know, delineated. It's it's um, roles and tasks within it so it's separated sales from accounting for example um and it's got you know all of that stuff um uh, mixed up and and there's not a lot of natural buyers for them so uh you're, you're the only game in town pretty much i was looking at a uh, industry statistics are saying right now a little over 1600 deals uh or companies uh close per day in the united states <clears throat> because they don't have a transition plan there's nobody to other buy them so yeah uh, i'm just trying to give it you know if you're listening the scope uh, or yeah. the scale I, of which I stumble is, across. I, I stumble is, across people all the time. There was a company here that was doing um, 12.5 million a year in revenue selling solar generators, solar panels, and solar generators. And he basically was leaving the country, so he decided to close it. He literally just locked the doors, turned off the website, and and disappeared. Um, and it, it literally just does not cross people's mind that there would be somebody that would buy that business um and yeah you'd be astonished how many people go right well i'm done now i'm retiring so i'll start running the business down over the next 12 months and then i'll close the doors and walk away um and they never dream that their business could actually be sold so let's cover uh, just a something that's unique about you amongst the other uh mentors that i've talked to and stuff i think carl travels a little bit but you're all over the world when you say here where, where do you happen to be right now? Because I've been on the phone with you on Clubhouse and you're in Dubai or, you know, just you're, you're, that doesn't look yeah, like so you, I mean, that doesn't look like your yacht. It looks because you have art. No, behind you, so I, I that, assume you're actually there's some yachts. There's some yachts out there. So. Uh, there it's down there. So are you in Dubai yeah, or yeah. right now? I'm in the, yeah, I'm in the Dubai Marina right now. So, yeah. So I, I um, yeah. So we're, we're Singapore permanent residents. We have the house here in Dubai. We also spend the summers in um, Europe. We have a couple of places in Europe we go regularly. So, yeah, we travel around a lot. Funnily enough, I don't travel that much for business. Um, so uh, next weekend I'm in Zanzibar, which I've never been to before in Tanzania, which should be good uh, good fun taking the kids there because it's the Easter holidays from school. And then I actually have a business trip, and I don't do, do too many of those. So, uh, yeah, I have a, uh, yeah, a couple of um, couple of meetings I'm flying to, one in uh, – London, one in the north of England, and then uh, back to Dubai. Um, but yeah, we travel. We travel a lot as a family. Um, we're global citizens. Um, we like to. Uh, yeah, we like to be in multiple places. So uh, you're actively doing deals. I mean, you're like in the in the weeds doing the deals, and then you step outside mm. of that occasionally to do mentoring and teach a teach a course. I know you're coming to the United States uh, in uh, May or June, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, this is the this is the thing you'd know that better than me. I, I actually don't know when I'm there. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, uh, I have a team. That, so we have a Harbour Club community. So when, when I started the Harbour Club, which is the, the kind of um, the mentoring teaching side of things, um, I started it because I was being pestered all the time by people to to come and work for them. So it was like, come and work for us and show us how you do what you do. You know, come and be a non-exec director or come and be a consultant. Help us buy a company. We want to buy a company. You know, this, this kind of stuff. So I kept saying no to all these people, but you know, when you say no to so many people, you think there's got to be kind of a product or a service or something in that. You can't get rid of the, you know, the entrepreneur uh, in you. Um, and then uh, I bought a seminar business. 
Um, and the seminar business was selling these seminars on marketing, on Facebook advertising, on all these kind of things. Um, this was back in like 2008. Um, and um, so I thought, ah, that's the solution. I can have a community for uh, and a course for um, buying and selling businesses. But I thought I want it to be the anti-course because most of, you know, the, most of the people that sell courses, you know, what is it, the old, um, those who can do, those who can't teach um, adage. And most of them are really just uh, marketing gurus and they have this funnel. You know, so they sell you a little product and then they sell you a bigger one and then they sell you a bigger one. And it's kind of a relentless upsell. And I remember when I was a kid and I used to go to seminars, this would drive me crazy because it would be like $59 and you're going to learn this and this and this over this three day course. And you're like, fuck, $59 for three days. That's amazing. You know, and then you get there. The first day is just shit about how great the second day is going to be. The second day is, um, uh, you know, warming you up for the close. And the third day is just a pitch like a whole day pitch for a 10, 20, 30 grand product that you have to buy to get all the stuff you thought you were going to get for the $59. Now, when you're an entrepreneur, three days out of your life is a lifetime. I mean, the shit that you could have got done if you weren't sitting there listening to this arrogant bastard pitch you all day, um, you know, you could have really made some some progress. So I, I swore to myself I would never do that kind of thing. And so we actually have an anti-course. There's no upsells. There's nothing you can buy from us apart from a, a membership. And um, it is a real community. Lots of people in the community. And there's an app where everybody collaborates. We have face-to-face uh, meetups and stuff. But what's been really good, I started it back in 2009. I had no idea it would be successful. I thought it would just be a way of getting rid of these people that asked me to uh, you know, work for them. Um, and actually, it started off with like four or five people in every uh, group now, you know the 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 one we're doing in London in April. I think it's 250 people. Um, now those are their existing members meeting up. This is not something we've sold them. This is a you know a kind of group event. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's caught. It's got a real life of its own, and the product innovation that comes out of it because everyone's sharing their ideas and coming up with new things. Um, it, it it constantly evolves and challenges my own ideas and everybody's ideas around. Um, different ways of doing deals. So it's been absolutely fantastic for my own development in, in this industry and uh, and getting stuff done. But I've been really lucky that the team I have around me in the Harbour Club pretty much take care of everything. In fact, I was asking, uh, so the, the the live event with 250 people is in about 14 days or 15 days from now. And I haven't actually seen an agenda for it yet. Um, I'm obviously going to be standing on a stage for, for three days. Um, but I haven't seen the agenda of, of what's uh, exactly what's going on. And all of that's been prepared in the background without my uh, involvement completely from, you know, uh, li- you know, all the guest speakers from the Harbour Club community who are sharing their case studies and all of that sort of stuff. And, and literally everything is taken care of without me, which is kind of lucky because I'm buried up to my eyeballs in, in deals at, at the moment. So we use um, we use this, you know, Mondays, the the project management software. So my whole team uses Mondays for tracking all the deals. But I use giant post-it notes all over my wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a glass partition. Um, uh, and each one of those is a deal uh, in various stages of, of progress. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really kind of uh, buried. It's a very busy time. Um, we're really buried at the moment. And uh, so it's great that I can just turn up and speak when it comes to the Harbour Club. So, and, and I turn up and speak about the last thing we did or the deal we're working on at the moment or the one that we closed last week. Um, and then it's super authentic. It's not like uh, some big pre-planned presentation about a deal from 15 years ago. Um, it's it's something uh, very contemporary. That's awesome. You know, <clears throat> one thing I will say, and as a kudos to you, uh, a compliment, 
the the uh, the club or you the uh, you call it the um, what's the word I'm looking for the environment the people yeah the people yeah. inside of Harbor Club are worth twice the price of admission right mm. I really uh, I've been through a lot of courses I used to joke around I have a bookcase it's taken down all right i turned my camera to show you this i have a bookcase of the real estate course that i took that at one point i did the math and it was like one hundred and forty thousand dollars worth of courses on this daggum bookshelf you know yeah shelf development yeah is it because you show up <laughs> to one of these like I, I you know if i go to this course i'll learn something and move my business forward they pitch you three more ideas and you got the money so you're like if i pull one idea out of that three thousand dollar course it's gonna you know it's gonna help my business I had courses I still had cellophane on. So when I decided to switch gears from real estate to buying and selling businesses as opposed to houses, I started making, I made the promise to friends and families. Like, I'm not going to go to a dozen courses. I'm going to pick one and I'm going to go do a deal or two. And if I do it, you know, when I get, when I get deals done, if I want to take something else, I'll go, I'll go learn from somebody else. Right. Mm. But that has to pay for itself because I don't want cellophane wrapped, you know, you know, plastic wrapped courses up there that I'm never going to crack the case on. Um, the, the community you have, that's the word I was looking for earlier. The community inside of Harbor Club truly is that it is a community. You can post questions there. People can answer those questions. I know a few of the other guys out there have something similar, but I have not I've been in, especially in the real estate side. I've been through all the programs. I haven't seen a community built like this. So uh, mm. I appreciate well, that. I think, I, think, uh, I think a lot of the other people, because they come from the digital marketing space, they tend to target the kind of get, get rich quick crowd. So it, it, it's not so much a community as kind of the blind leading the blind, um, whereas all of our marketing is deliberately targeted at entrepreneurs and business owners and, um, you know, uh, in, interesting people. Uh, and so we don't tap into any kind of joint ventures with personal development companies or, um, uh, you know, by any of those kind of get rich quick databases quite deliberately because the quality of the community is really important. You know, ultimately, I end up doing deals in the community, so I don't want you know, loads of people in there that are just taking up space because they paid us some money. Um, I'd much rather have people that, you know, are actively out there finding deals. And when they find one that they think might be a cool joint venture with me, they'll bring it, uh, they'll bring it to me. They're not obliged to, but, um, uh, but you know, that does, does seem to work pretty well. That's awesome. You know, let's talk a little bit about the availability of deals across the world. Cause, uh, you are uniquely positioned to have seen it, right? You've been, you've been to the U.S. You've been, you know, uh, pretty much everywhere. I think in the, uh, in the last twelve months, have skills will travel, months. right? So in the, in the what, last in the last twelve months, we've done uh, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, the U.K., France, U.S., and Canada. Transactions in all of those countries in the last twelve months. Yeah, so. So if you're uh, listening you'll to this, you think... you'll notice I'm mainly English speaking, so we're a bit lazy in that respect. Apart from France, obviously. <laughs> So if you're listening to this, you think, yeah, that works over there because, you know, you know, he lives in, in Dubai and that's where all the wealthy people are. Or, you know, uh, I'm not in California where all the businesses are. I'm sitting in Tulsa. Now I'm moving to California in a few weeks or I'm moving to wine country uh, but for family reasons. But I'm sitting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, I've talked to businesses in Dubai. I've talked to businesses, you know, all over the world. Uh, the, the market has changed. Um, how has COVID affected you? Because for us, it actually helped us. People are way more comfortable doing yeah. deals via Zoom than ever before. That, that was one big transformative thing. What, what was really funny, so our, we, we, we got our Zoom account in 2016. Um, and actually at that time, we took a vote in our office because I've, I've got like 17 people in an office in, in Singapore, or not, not in an office anymore. 
But in 2016, we actually had a vote on would you prefer to work from home or carry on coming to the office? And it was overwhelmingly work from home. And so we actually switched our entire business model to working from home from 2016. We also got rid of holiday time. So there's no vacation time. If you want to go on vacation, just go. Um, you just have to make sure all the work is done. So we have complete flexible working with the entire uh, team. And um, so actually, when COVID arrived, we were pretty well set up for it straight away. And um, uh, and like you say, doing deals over Zoom um, really, really improved. Although one thing I would say is that doing deals over Zoom in Europe and Australasia and Asia um, was fairly easy. I would actually say in the US, it was a little bit harder. Um, so in the US, we noticed during the, the, lock, the really harsh lockdown period, like 2020 time, complete drop off of transactions in, in the US. Um, we were having plenty of calls. We were having plenty of conversations, but nothing was really closing. But we were clo- closing deals like crazy in Europe. Um, and they had exactly the same lockdowns and restrictions and, and all of that stuff. So, um, uh, so I think, um, it does, it does vary a little bit from one geography to another. Some people like that face to face touch. Some of them are happy to do the entire transaction, uh, virtually. Um, the other interesting thing was just it brought all the people that might possibly want to sell to the front of the queue of definitely wanting to sell now. Um, so they got off the fence pretty quickly. And so there's a big influx of potential opportunities. And what was interesting is they weren't just the COVID affected businesses. So you had people wanting to sell who have businesses that were, you know, bucking the trend. We bought a caravan and motorhome business. You call them RVs, but, um, uh, you know, that's obviously booming because there's no uh, cruise ships or foreign holidays and stuff like that. So, um, you know, but that, that was a, a retirement sale where the retirement was possibly accelerated by, uh, COVID. Um, and then you have all the bounce back kind of opportunities. So you have the restaurants, the spas, the, um, gyms, the health clubs, the hairdressers, the, all of those kind of uh, businesses that were, you know, decimated by, uh, COVID, but, you know, great businesses to bounce back once things kind of return, uh, to normality. And, um, so, you know, there, there was kind of two streams of opportunity. There was the buy them when they're down because they're going to bounce back or buy them because they're a really good bet in this you know, new world that we find ourselves in. So, yeah, they kind of fall broadly into those two categories. But, but, but there's more of both. We put together a small team and I don't want to go too far into it, but we, in a matter of 200 and I think 200, less than 220 days, spoke to nearly 200 marketing agencies. And all mm-hmm. via Zoom, a lot of them in the United States. And the funny thing that the, the United States, at the beginning of that conversation, we were right in the middle of the COVID time. At the beginning of it, you could tell that the owners were a little disappointed we weren't going to fly, fly out because here in the United mm-hmm. States, they're used to a team or one or two people flying them out, taking them to the finest restaurant in town, buying them the finest bottle of wine and wine in and dining. And are like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're, you know, we're, we've got this opportunity for you. We're not flying anywhere. And if you're interested, let's talk. And um, it's the conversation still move forward. So uh, I think yeah, there yeah. is a little bit of that here in the United States is, uh, you know, business owners that are in, especially in spaces that are courted commonly, uh, marketing agencies, software companies, people that, you know, people are trying to buy them often. They, some of them play the game. They just like to go out to the fine restaurants and dinners and hear what you have to say. So to some mm-hmm. respect, we would have never accomplished talking to that many businesses if we had to fly somewhere, travel and everything. And yeah. we would have spent a shit ton of money, excuse my French. We would have spent a lot of money flying, dining, you know, and, and uh, just trying to have conversations uh, just yeah. to find out they weren't really interested to start with. 
So yeah, just generally ruining your marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Is uh, the dating the dating of business owners is a lot easier when you can just zoom them and like you know get a judge exactly. of you know, what their motivations are and what you're they're trying to do. That let's talk about that. The first call or the first like presentation you have with a business owner. What 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 do you see as the most important thing to do on that call? Build, build rapport. Um, so create a relationship with the other party. And I think, um, I think people get so, I see this a lot in the, in the community with, with new starters. They get really hung up on that first deal or their first meeting. Um, and I think they feel like this first meeting has to be a deal. They have to close it. They have to come out, you know, with something. And I always just try and calm people back down and say, look, treat this as like the research phase you're you're going to go and speak to a bunch of entrepreneurs that all own the types of businesses that you'd like to end up owning in the future and you're doing that in order to find out what the common uh, issues are challenges are in the industry um you know areas where there might be opportunity to collaborate and i said and, and really just think of it that you did you didn't have a deal when you went into that meeting so what's the worst that can happen you know you you leave the meeting either having learned something or with a deal you never had before so um, there really is no lose from that meeting. And if you can relax and, and approach the meeting from just having a chat with another human being about life, the universe and everything, um, you'll actually get a lot further than you will being this kind of hungry Rottweiler um, trying to get information out of them and trying to get a deal done. Because um, uh, nobody wants a hungry Rottweiler humping their leg, do they? <laughs> you, want, uh, you want to just have a, a decent chat. And I, and I think people really, really underestimate that. And particularly... You know, I see a lot of the kind of MBA students who, you know, they go nuts with the fancy dress department. So they've got their Hermes belt and their three-piece suit and, the, you know, they've, they've got their 200 grand watch on and everything. And they go, uh, you know, they go in there and they, they try and be as professional as possible by being as boring as fuck and asking questions about accounts for two hours. Um, and, of course, that's not going to get them into the affections of a seasoned 30-year entrepreneurial veteran who, <laughs> who likes, you know, Who's, who's got there through their own kind of sweat and graft. And, and so, um, yeah, build, build rapport, build empathy is, is the number one outcome for that first meeting. So it says on your LinkedIn profile, you did this, you, you acquired your first business in the, in the 90s. So you've been doing this for 20 plus years now. What mm. are some of the things you know now that you wish you'd have known on day one? Oh, my God. Well, I guess one of the obvious ones is big deals take exactly the same time and energy as small ones. Um, so you can piss around doing a deal with, you know, for 500 grand of revenue or one that's doing 50 million of revenue and it's broadly the same, uh, amount of, of work and effort. Um, and so yeah, think bigger, I guess would be, would be one thing. But then again, I wouldn't take away that rite of passage. I possibly wouldn't be able to do those bigger deals if I hadn't, hadn't got some smaller ones under my uh, belt initially to give me the, uh, the expertise and, and confidence. Um, uh, I mean, look, this is just a massive learning curve. I often joke to people that I know 10% about M&A, but that's 9% more than the, anybody else. <laughs> so it really is. It's such a vast topic. And particularly, I mean, we keep evolving what we're doing, you know. So we, we, we created a new product called an extra bond, which is effectively a currency you can use to acquire companies. It's kind of like printing your own money and then acquiring businesses with them, uh, with that money. And, um, we invented that strategy. We've done about 15 deals now using, um, extra bonds in the last sort of year. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a game changer and we're about to use it in a few other companies, um, and, uh, and kind of roll it out. 
but that's a baptism of fire. Like, uh, how do you list a bond? What is a bond? How do you structure a bond? What needs to go into the prospectus of the bond? How can you have a bond that's not for raising capital, but to be used as a currency? What are the legal ramifications of that? And, and basically, you know, had to research all of that stuff, you know, ourselves and figure it out and, uh, and, and go and do that. Um, and that's really like, um, you know, uh, I guess a fairly typical kind of, um, uh, thing for me. I spend a lot of time, you know, reading stuff on the internet. I was reading a whole bunch of stuff about interim reports today. We're listing a company on a, a, a junior stock market on another exchange. And they were challenging me about interim reports being audited. And I said, I'm pretty sure interim reports of public companies aren't actually audited. Um, it's only the annual report that's audited. The interim reports are normally, you know, qualified. Um, maybe an auditor says, yes, these are the company's management numbers, but man- management numbers by definition aren't audited. And so, you know, I, I'm off researching to be able to tell a regulator in a country what they should know <laughs> about something. And I find myself doing that a lot. Um, researching stuff so I can tell lawyers what they should be telling me. Um, but I think you need to, I think you need to do that. I think you need to, you know, constantly be educating yourself, not relying, just relying on advisors to go and find things for you and pay them for, for their advice, but actually going, you know, if this is the takeover panel in the UK, for example, which uh, um, governs the acquisition of companies by public companies in the UK, well, the takeover panel has a website. And it has its rule book and it's not a big rule book. It's 70 pages. So go read it. Um, and honestly, if you've read it, you're probably more up to speed than your lawyer is because they read it 15 years ago when they qualified and may be aware of some of the amendments, but probably aren't, it probably isn't as current in their mind as it is in yours when you've just finished reading it. So go, go and do the research, go and do the legwork, learn about everything voraciously. And, uh, and you know, you'll be amazed how much stuff you can pick up. So what I picked up out of that right there was you don't have to give up your creative side and your building stuff side to be an acquisition entrepreneur. You can acquire companies and use your creative side and your building side on building new strategies for acquiring, building new strategies for funding, building new strategies for exiting, right? Mm, Absolutely. It's creative deal structures, yes. I mean, acquiring companies is kind of problem solving. Um, and, uh, and you, we all get a buzz when we solve a problem, don't we? And it's, uh, it's, it's that, it's that dopamine hit, I guess, that I'm addicted to. It's funny as I, I, I always call myself a problem solver, but the, I, I try to quit a little bit there because what is a problem? What, what, what is everybody that you know bring a problem solver? right so if you identify yourself as a guy who's really good at solving problems to this day, I still get three calls a week uh, at least with the real estate problems, title problems, issues. And I help those people because they're friends. But uh, yeah, we used to labeling... them, look, the problem, you should say the problem I have right now is, is the money that I want is in your pocket. <laughs> They'll leave you alone. <laughs> I have a friend who's going through law school. He just says, uh, he says, you know what? Send everybody a, a, an invoice and then put the friends and family discount at the bottom to zero it out. But at least then they can see what you would have charged anybody else to do that. And uh, they'll respect your time a little bit more. I've got it dialed down. I used to, I would say two years ago before that, that lawyer friend, a performance coach friend of mine, uh, he's also a performance coach, got on to me over it. I would spend 10, 15 hours a week on the phone, helping people solve problems for, for nothing. Right. That just, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so inside of this space, you're, you're reaching out to business owners. You're, you're figuring out what their pain points are. 
uh, I've learned through those 200 plus conversations I've already had and through talking to all these people on the podcast, most of buyers don't necessarily take, I would say 80% of the people. And when I asked them, they didn't take the highest and best offer mm. on their business. No, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. And, and the number of times I've seen this where somebody has a very well-crafted uh, offer with cash on the table and they will end up going with the no cash uh, option because they see it as a, a safer pair of hands, a more reliable buyer, uh, a more empathetic uh, buyer, perhaps somebody that's going to take care of their staff or, or um, you know, maintain the company's name or the company's building or something like this. You know, there's, um, yeah, legacy is always, so legacy is a really interesting motivation because most of the, most of the other things people will bring up with you as, you know, straight off the bat as something that they're looking to do. Like I, I really want to make sure the staff are looked after is something that they'll, they'll just come up with. But saying I'd like my name on the front of this building for the next 30 years is a bit hard. You know, you sound like a fucking egomaniac if you say that. So, but you know they want um, it. But you know they want it. Yeah. So leg legacy is, a, is one of those things where you, if you suggest it, you'll very quickly gauge from their physiology whether you've just hit the, the hot button or whether it doesn't really bother them at all. Um, and, uh, and if you have hit that hot button, then go full steam into legacy. Um, and what you're going to, you know, I'm going to set up the, you know, the fucking Dave Smith foundation for battered children or something. <laughs> go all in on legacy. <laughs> I, I honestly would have never expected that legacy and taking care of their team would overrule money way more often than it would not right yeah oftentimes they're done with the, the money creation bit they did that years ago they've got the they've got the holiday home they've got the new car when when you're going into retirement you really have your pension kind of taken care of um an, an extra few hundred grand here or there you know probably isn't the most important thing in your life not being hated and having to look over your shoulder in a small town for the rest of your life that's a whole different uh you know kettle of fish so one of the questions I had for you is, because uh, I've come across this a couple times when I was talking to somebody wanting to retire, it's the, what do they do next? How do you, inside of that rapport building thing, um, you know, I've seen deals like crash at the last second because the owner doesn't know what he's going to do with this time when he sells. I have a soap company here in, in town I'd love to get my hands on, but the owner's 70 plus and he thinks all of his friends sold their business or shut it down and retired and then died within weeks. He thinks when he sells this thing, he's dying, right? Like he actually said on the yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not ready to die yet. So uh, yeah, it's it's a it is a common one. I think it's Warren Buffett. You know, he bought that company from a woman who was 93, and she retired when she was 104, 105, and then she died straight away. And he says, and that just demonstrates the perils of early retirement. <laughs> but the. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, look, one, one thing is to keep them around. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of a non-job called the chairman emeritus. So chairman emeritus is the kind of person who started the business and it gives them a role in the business as sort of an ambassador for the company. It can be unpaid or it can be low paid, um, but it keeps their involvement. You know, you say to them, look, obviously a lot of the, you know, a lot of the business was built on your reputation and your stuff. So we want to, you know, wheel you out for the Christmas parties and bring you in perhaps for the odd key client once or twice a year. Um, and we'll keep you as chairman emeritus, which is the, you know, not the chairman, not the CEO, not, nothing to do with management, can't tell you to do anything, <laughs> but um, they still have a business card. 
uh, and uh, yeah, maybe on the website and things like that. And it, it, it can be helpful. And you know, and actually for transitioning, it's a positive thing. If they want to stick around and do that role, it means that they, you know, they're not selling it because they think it's going to fall off a cliff tomorrow. Um, so uh, you know, that, that's encouraging if you can keep them around on that sort of basis. Cool. We are actually getting close to the top of the hour. So uh, mm. one of the things I like to, to, to always ask is like, what are your big three, two or three takeaways as far as like, if you're going to get into this space, you probably should do these three things or know these three things. Yeah. Look, um, uh, start the process of educating yourself uh, on the topic. So, um, you know, there's lots of, uh, I, I publish tons of stuff on YouTube Um there's tons of stuff on social media. We give away a lot of free content because we want people to join the community who are pretty sure this is the path that they want to take. We even do a whole 21 day free email course. You can probably dig out if you follow me on social media. We probably post, I, I actually don't know, but we probably post links to it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that, that's really to try and educate the audience a lot without them having to part with any money or, or, or do anything else so that they understand this is a path they want to take. Because look, it is pretty polarizing. As an idea, you you know you you either love it or you hate it. So we'd much rather help people as, as far as as possible to decide whether or not that's something they want to do. So that would definitely be my number one uh, kind of um, takeaway is to start that process of of kind of educating uh, yourself. And it, and if you've decided it is something that you want to do, um, then you can even start the process of outreach to um, uh, to company owners. Um, so start speaking to business owners in the sort of industries that you're looking at. Don't bother going to business brokers or businesses for sale or anything like that. Um, but yeah, start that sort of outreach to have conversations with them. You'll be amazed sometimes, you know, when you speak to three of them that you might find tie ups between those three. Like one of them wants to retire and one of them's young and hungry. Well, maybe those two companies belong together and, you know, uh, you, you might actually find some natural synergies between the conversations that, um, uh, you know, that you end up uh, having. And I'd probably say they're the kind of two key foundation things. I wouldn't even go as far as, uh, as saying number three. Awesome. <clears throat> you know, and I, and I really resonate with that, talking to the business owners. One of the things you said during the course, and I don't know if you say it at everyone, but it just really stuck with me is don't buy yourself another job. So uh, mm. like identifying those two that work together is often a way to do that. If you, if you see a company really needs, you know, some inside help, um, you know, buying a second one that's really well run that may be smaller or whatever, they're just better managed would be a great way to give them that, that help. Uh, so yeah, a small, a small distressed company can be a real handful, but you can inject that small distressed company into a big profitable one in exchange for a stake and, uh, yeah, and have a stake in something big and healthy. Awesome. Well, is there any parting shots you want to throw out there to the, the audience? Uh, let's make sure they know how to get a hold of you for one. So, uh, yeah, so <clears throat> social media, I guess. So I think, um, my LinkedIn is there on the, uh, on the screen, but, um, yeah, Jeremy Harbour, it's spelled in the British way, H-A-R-B-O-U-R, but you can find me on, yeah, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, there's jeremyharbour.com as well. If you want to go there, that's got links to, um, pretty much everything. I'll put all those links in the show notes for you guys who are listening on the podcast. You just uh, take a look at the show notes. They'll be there. And then uh, on YouTube and everything else, it'd be in the show description. So I'll have links to uh, how to reach out to him and, and I'll have my team put together all your social media links so they can reach out to you. I appreciate having you on the show today. Um, really appreciate everything you give to the community. And uh, thank you for being here. No, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I hope if we inspired 
one person out there to go out and do a deal, that would be great. That would be awesome. Uh, hang out a second there after we get done here, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make that, that the show. Thank you guys for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind